Well, I'm Gabe Oatley, co-host of Pull Quotes. And I'm Raha Farawi, the other half of Pull Quotes, the podcast where we take you behind the scenes of Canada's top long-form stories. We do! So Gabe, uh, I remember you pitched our guest for this week and you warned us that it took you an hour and a half to finish reading their most recent story. (laughs) (laughs) This is true, it did. So who is our guest? (laughs) This week on the podcast, uh, we have Richard Warnica. Richard's a feature writer with the Toronto Star, and he's published with Maclean's, with the National Post, with Canadian Business and elsewhere. Um, And I wanted to talk to him about a story he recently published for Hazlitt. Okay, so you've read this piece, you said it's long, you liked it. How would you pitch it, though, to convince someone to spend an hour and a half reading it? It, honestly, I think it's an easy sell. Um, this piece is great for so many reasons. Uh, first of all, it's about scams. Um, and I think scams are fascinating business. Uh, the first scam is a big art fraud involving um, well-known Canadian businessman David Mervish. Uh, the second is about an estate scam connected to that first art fraud. Um, and the third is about Donald Trump being scammy at his own inauguration. Mm-hmm. Um, but honestly, it's about those scams and so much more. It's about Richard's own obsession with a painter, a guy named Mark Rothko. It's about his own relationship to writing and his experience of depression. Okay, um, should we play the interview? Let's do it. All right, uh, Richard, hi. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, so great uh, that you could be on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, so we are here today to talk about your story, Rothko, at the inauguration. Um, the story's billed as the story of America in three scams. Um, to get into it, can you just like give us a brief sketch of those three scams? Sure. So, um, it's interesting. I actually changed the title at the last minute for a long time. It was, uh, Rothko at the inauguration, a story in... X number of fragments, but then I decided right at the last minute that some of the chunks were too long to be considered fragments. Hmm. Um, but the three scams basically are what was the, the the largest, most consequential art fraud in the New York art world in the late 20th century, the um, greatest betrayal in sort of the history of the modern art world in New York and the inauguration of Donald Trump. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um how did you come to this story and how did you choose these three scams? So for me, the story started um, when I was a reporter at Canadian Business Magazine. Um, and I was working on a story about a guy named David Mervish, who most people know as like a theater impresario in Toronto, but is also a really well-known modern art collector. And he had become involved in a uh, huge sort of art scandal in New York. And his involvement was, was pretty tangential. But um, I was interested in in finding out how he got involved in this massive forgery ring um, out of New York through this gallery called Nodler Gallery. And it, it took me quite a while to figure out how to do that story and to get anything new on that story. Hmm. And as I sort of reported it, I, I really became interested in and close to obsessed with the art that had been faked, if that makes sense, Mm. Um, which was a lot of sort of um, abstract expressionist uh, American art, uh, some Canadian, but mostly, you know, um, 
Rothko and uh, a little bit of Pollock, that sort of era. And I started whenever I could, if I happened to be in a city on business or for fun, trying to find these paintings. And that led me to Washington in 2016, which was, I was there to cover the inauguration of Donald Trump. And I really wanted to see um, uh, a Spanish elegy by Robert Motherwell, which I knew that the National Gallery in Washington had. And I ended up stumbling into something I didn't know existed, which was the Rothko Room at the National Gallery, uh, which is just a room entirely filled with Rothkos. And it's maybe my favorite room in the world, I <laughs> later discovered. But um, I, I just, I was so struck by that moment. And it huh. was a very, it was a very weird time in my life and in the world. And I sort of sat there by myself because the gallery was virtually deserted uh, and ended up like crying and walking out and ended up walking out and wrote in my notebook as I, as I left Rothko at the inauguration. And I knew I wanted to write about it, but I had no idea what I was going to write at that time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And where did it go from there? Like, how did you go from like fascinated by Mervish and this like art scandal? You'd seen these paintings. You were like quite enamored by these paintings. You were also just like living your life and being a feature writer at the same time. Uh, like, where did it go from that feeling in that room to actually like putting down all of these words on paper? Well, <laughs> it's a long answer because it, if, as you may have noticed, Trump was inaugurated five years ago uh -huh. and the story came out a month ago. Uh -huh. um, I originally, so I came back from, uh, from DC and then I got married a week after that. Um, and uh, shortly after that, I had a kid and I sort of came back from uh, kid and marriage and um, had just finished at the time that summer a big feature on uh, a guy named Ezra Levant and, and this thing called Rebel Media and knew that the next thing I wanted to do was this Rothko thing and I sort of pitched it four or five different ways to my editors at huh. the Post uh, and I mean these are some of like the, the weirdest <laughs> least put together pitches you could ever imagine because I really I didn't know what the story was I just knew it was a story and I would you know I would even talk to like my like my good friends who have a lot of patience for my weird ideas and I'd kind of see their eyes being like what is he talking about <laughs> um and yeah it just kind of I kept getting various ways of saying no to it without ever fully saying no to it mm. um and I just also then kept researching and researching. And it wasn't until I I did this thing called the Massey Fellowship at U of T, which is they select a five or six journalists a year and you just go and hang out and learn and read and, and don't do work. And it was sort of the first time I had not been working full-time as a journalist since journalism school, which was about 15 years at that point. Mm. Um, and it was incredible. And it, it, one of the classes I sat in on was this like English seminar on fragments, um, which was not something I'd really heard of as a literary genre before. Um, and I had like a, like a real epiphany in that class that was like, oh, 
that's how I'm going to tell this story. <laughs> huh. Huh. That's so interesting. I feel like uh, I I really enjoyed this story and it felt challenging to me as a reader. Like it took me reading it twice to, I think, actually let a lot of it sink in. And, and upon reflection today, it felt to me like in a way like a a feature that feels more like a poem than it does a standard sort of like character plot driven feature. Um, and that makes sense a, a little bit more, you know, given the the work you were doing at Massey. That's cool. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, yeah, like maybe the, the nut graph or lack of nut graph for this piece. So I saw you wrote on Twitter that like, you know, this this piece in your eyes didn't have anything that that closely resembled a nut graph. Um, in my reading, it felt like they're like, is there is a thing that like pulls these scams together that comes out like way down in the piece um, that sort of each of these three scams or grifts like show the world as it is very briefly. And I guess I'm wondering if you can talk about that decision to like not have a nut graph up high and to like take the reader on this journey with you in where you were at in your life and in meandering through these scams with you. Like, talk about that decision a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean, I was very conscious of not wanting to put my thumb on the scale too hard and like bash the reader over the head with like, this is what this story is about. This is America and capitalism and uh, all that stuff. Cause I knew it would be bad. Um, and I, I was really influenced by an interview I either heard or read, I don't remember now, with Catherine Schultz, the New Yorker writer, where she was talking about this piece she did called Hot Tamale Louie, which was this feature that came out um, early in the Trump administration and was about um, this tamale seller in the old west of Wyoming, who was also the only Muslim who lived in town. Um, and like it clearly had overtones to the present moment but she did not explicitly talk about those overtones basically until the last paragraph. Mm. And in the interview, she said like, it would not have worked like it. And, and it's true. Like you have to engage the reader in the story. And what I was trying to do was engage them in these threads so that they gradually felt what I was trying to make them feel rather than the sort of traditional way of like person does thing here is what this thing means in the broader context. Do you know what I mean? Totally, totally. And had you written many pieces like this before? Or was this like the first of its kind for you? Yeah, no, I've, I've definitely never written uh, another 17,000 word fragmented piece without a nut graph. Uh, and shout out to Hazlitt for probably being like the only place that would publish that kind of thing. No, it, it's been like a goal. I, I've wanted to... I don't know. I'm always interested in like stories that when you read them kind of make you feel something in your chest a bit and something unusual and nothing against the traditional feature format. I, I use it professionally all the time, but I find the pieces that speak to me the most and the ones that I read and want to go back and start again, or I read and then I look at the byline and I go try to read everything else they've ever written, more and more tend to be the ones where those themes are allowed to to develop 
more organically. Hmm. Do you think you're just like bored of that traditional structure? Uh, I'm not bored of it. I mean, it, it works, right? Like, and it, it just depends on the story. Um, like I, I had to do, or I didn't have to do, but I did along with my colleague, Christine Dobby, a, a big, very sort of traditionally structured piece on Rogers right before Christmas. And that's like, it's like classic feature 101, right? Mm-hmm. It's start in the middle of the drama, cut back to the nut graph, go from the beginning and take you through to the end. And like the reason people tell stories like that all the time is because it works. It, it's super effective at hooking someone into the narrative, keeping them involved, and then like slathering on anything else you want to slather on. Mm-hmm. Um, I just find like, as a reader, I enjoy consuming information that way. I don't often leave a story like that feeling like some part of like my guts have been changed, Uh which I think is like the, that's the, you can't do it with every piece, but if you sort of look at back at a career, I think, did I make someone really feel something will be the goal with a career. Hmm. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, this piece to me felt more like how it feels to me to engage with art, like, uh, looking at it and like trying to figure it out um, as I'm like staring at it or going through it. Um, and it was interesting that this was also a piece about art. I guess I wondered about that a little bit, like if in telling stories about different things, you had any, whether you try and mess around with the form to make it say something or be in relationship to the the topic at hand or whether or not that was just sort of coincidence in this case? That's a really good question. Um, I think like, like I try when I'm writing a feature, when I'm reporting a feature to have like a central question that I'm trying to answer. And like the initial central question of this story was like, why did that room full of Rothko's make me feel like that? And I think because it was a story about how art made me feel, it ended up being inevitably a story that tried to make the reader feel something too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I did a lot of um, like crime writing in my early career, and I, I still do some, but all, you know, a lot of murders, a lot of trials. And the feelings in those pieces come from horrific events, right? And, and people who have gone through awful things and... Um, you don't necessarily need to explain why someone feels the way they do if they're grieving a murdered loved one uh-huh. or, um, <clears throat> and I, I, I tell students if I'm teaching feature writing that a lot of time, the more obvious the thing to try to convey, the more you want to pull back the writing, hmm. if that makes sense, just hmm. let it be spare and let it speak for what it is. Um, but with this one, like nothing was obvious. Um, and so I really had to had to work to to not only understand what I was feeling, but then understand how to put that on the page in a way that's not going to come across as trite or, or fake. Huh. Yeah. I'm curious about your decision to include so much of yourself and your own journey in this story. You talk about you know, yeah, where you were at in your life in terms of your um, 
your romantic relationship. You talk about becoming a father. You talk about your own mental health journey a little bit. Um, why did it feel right in the case of this story to like to put so much more of yourself in it? And I guess I'm curious, like if you tried drafts where there was less of you um, or whether or not it felt like because of the complex you know, sort of ideas that you were, ideas, events that you were stringing together, it felt like you needed to be maybe a more central character. Yeah. So my first complete draft had significantly less of me. And um, that was something Haley Cunningham, my editor, that I think that was like her foremost note was she wanted more of me earlier. Um, I kind of got into this habit during the pandemic of writing pieces where they would be like, pretty much third person. And then I would just sort of flick to myself mm. at the end. Um, and I did that, I think in the first draft, like the, the three sections, I would kind of flick to myself a bit. Um, and she was like, we just need, we need more of you up top because you're the guide through these three sections and you're the person taking us there. And it is like the only real thing that is not thematic connecting these three threads is you. And so you have to be there. Um, and yeah, I think she was right. Um, we sort of went back and forth a little bit about, about how much of me, but the other, the other thing about that, I think is, I think the pandemic changed my approach to writing about myself hmm. by necessity, because especially in the early days, things were happening so fast and I didn't have the time to do what feature writers normally do, which is find people going through stuff to stand in for the whole of <laughs> other people going through stuff. Right. And I, I felt, I felt like really urgently that I wanted to reflect the experience of this like sort of unprecedented shutdown and, and chaos back to people and the fastest and most reliable way for me to do that early on was to reflect it through my own experience because mm. I was stuck in my house and I couldn't go anywhere. I was actually literally on lockdown the first two weeks of it because I, I had just come back from the States. But um, that, I think, contributed to how I wrote about myself in the final draft of this piece. Huh. Huh. So interesting. Do you think that will stick? Like, do you think you'll keep including more of yourself now that you've done it more or will like if the pandemic ever ends, <laughs> will you go back to finding <laughs> other people to stand in for, you know, emotions that you want to convey? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like my job, I'm a business feature writer now. And like, there's just no, there's no cause for me to be in any of the stories I write at the star right now. Like no one needs me to guide them through like Rogers or like, <laughs> lobbying in the Ford government. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but I think like, I don't think I'm done with that approach. Uh, I just think it, it has to be sort of guided by the project. Hmm. Yeah, fair. Um, I want to talk about the writing in this piece a little bit, um, pulling out like a couple of lines in particular. So uh, like writing about a room in the National Gallery in Washington, you say, if you spend much time inside, it begins to feel like the paintings are closing in, a soft smothering of paint and mood. Or later in the piece, um, when you're writing about seeing Trump in person, you write, 
the experience was a bit like being drawn into a big top by a carnival barker, only to find the barker himself on stage, inside, yelling about the greatness of barking. It's That's, like, such a good line. It's such a great line. Thank you. Um, both of those lines, like, ugh, I was just like, fuck, those are some fucking, that's some great writing. Um, I also read a piece of yours where you were writing about Tim Horton's coffee. Um, oh and God. you you wrote that drinking Tim Horton's coffee is like drinking a cup of hot sadness, which is just amazing. That is a legendary line. I guess I have I, literally I, no memory of writing that piece. I'm sure I, I I'll, did. I'll flip you the link okay. after. Um, I'm curious, like, what your process is for coming up with like nuggety lines like that. Like, how do you do that? So, I think like with the first two you cited, like the Trump line and the um, Rothko line is, and this isn't something that came naturally or I started out doing, but just being very, very aware in a moment of how you are processing things as you are processing them. So um, really filling the notebook, or now I just, I honestly just do it on the notes app on my phone, not just with what I'm seeing, but with my initial impressions of those things. and I, I'm sure I could probably go back to my notes from sitting in the Rothko room and come up with some version of that line. Because I don't think, you know, you can take a picture, you can take notes of what you can see. You can't, like, take a picture of your emotion in a place. You kind of have to trust yourself as an observer in that spot. Hmm. The Trump one's interesting because I, I was writing about um, I was writing about somewhere I had been like five years earlier, maybe six years earlier, because that was really early in the primaries. Um, and I think it's just sort of focusing not on, oh, I'm trying to make a clever line or I'm trying to make something sound nice, mm. but does do the words here accurately convey what I felt mm. or what I'm trying to get across? And if you just keep keep doing that and erasing and, and starting over again, sometimes you get to those spots. Hmm. And are you someone for whom like writing it down? So you're you're like whatever, you're at this Trump rally, you're like seeing Trump live, you're like feeling what you're feeling. Are you somebody for whom like writing it down as you're feeling it is the way that you best sort of process those feelings. I guess I ask as somebody who I think oftentimes like the way that I am most myself in expressing things is like talking about it with other people. I'll tell mm. some, somebody about it and I'll just say like, it's like this thing and blah, 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 blah. But I, I guess like, yeah, is is that your process sort of writing it down and that's sort of your conduit for, for those feelings to come out? Oh, oh, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually like famously inarticulate uh, what, trying to describe things speaking them out loud in words it drives my wife crazy because she's like what did it look like I'm like I that's blue I don't know (laughs) um yeah I I have to sort of do it writing it down Hmm. and like sometimes I find like if I have pictures on my phone I can sort of summon that feeling a bit but again it only comes through I don't sort of know how I felt about it until I've been able to write how I felt about it Hmm. okay cool um Sticking with, like, the writing and sort of, like, the fine gaze a little bit, um, 
I'm curious about like your process with descriptions. So in the story you write um, about this Belgian hedge fund manager named Pierre Lagrange, uh, and you write that he looks like, quote, an aging, well-groomed werewolf. Um, so I read that description. I was like, wow, that is pointed. And I Googled this guy and like, I don't disagree with you. Um, and it's also certainly not like a flattering description. Like if I were Pierre, I wouldn't be like loving that, you know, I guess I'm curious what your approach is in writing descriptions. Um, and I guess I would imagine trying to balance something like truth, like what you see and what you feel with like, I don't know, like maybe like generosity or fairness or, you know, like seeing the other person on the other end, reading it. Like, how do you approach that? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think like I, like I hate descriptions that are in there just because like I think of them as like the default New Yorker description where it's like Richard Warnica, comma, who is six feet tall and wears <laughs> pants. And it's like, that doesn't tell you anything about the person, right? Uh-huh. They're, they're in there because they're always like two descriptors in a, in a, in a, Um, parenthetical clause like the second time someone's introduced in a New Yorker story you you want from me or I want to use a description when it is going to help give a visual sense of a person to a reader and and that's often to me something slightly unusual Um, and like Lagrange's case it's just what I thought he looked like (laughs) you know I was doing the research I'm like oh my god He's such a particular looking man. What does he look like? Um, And like a billionaire hedge fund owner, I'm not, I'm not particularly worried that he's going to be hurt by being described as a aging, well-groomed werewolf. Um, The the only one I think who actually got kind of mad at me in the story, not mad, but wasn't thrilled was I, I described this NPR reporter who was so great and did all this incredible reporting and gave me all this time. as like looking like a reporter on TV. Mm -hmm. Um, and he he didn't think that that was accurate, but he wasn't super mad. I, th- I think though, like the broader question of how do you balance, I don't think you ever, especially in a feature, want to write something deliberately hurtful or, um, or that says more about how you look at something than about how someone actually is. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if you're just picking out this is something I find distasteful about this person and I'm going to put it down to hurt them. Right. I I think that's probably just bad writing. It's going to distract the reader and it's not really fair to the subject. But I also think like writing, writing should be visual. It, It should make, give people a sense of who these people are. And that can't just be bland descriptions that, that don't say anything. Mm hmm. Totally. What's it like for you when somebody comes back and is, you know, hurt or pissed uh, about how you describe them or how they're they're represented in a story you've written? Um, yeah, it's interesting because, like, I think I work really hard to make sure there aren't errors in pieces. And I do. I do work really hard to be fair. Um, and I find that in the years I've been doing things, the stuff that has made people the angriest has often been stuff that I never would have thought would have made someone mad. Um, And so I think like the immediate thing is, 
oh god was i correct and oh god was i unfair Mm. and you kind of have to go back and check and if you've made a mistake and i've made mistakes like i think everybody does and had to correct things that's the worst like that's the absolute worst feeling because you're like this person is misrepresented in the pages because i screwed up i made a mistake right um if you didn't and you think it's fair and they're mad then i always try to like give them a chance to talk about it to say do you want to talk this through with me i'll explain to you why i I did it the way i did it um Hmm. and that like you'd be surprised at how often people if you just come back to people respectfully and say this is how i feel about this thing they will want to talk to you about it Hmm. and, and be okay with it not always like there's some people who just you know, you write something unflattering about their company or something like that, and they're always going to hate you. But Hmm. sometimes that's just the work. And how does that go? Like you, so like when, when I've written features, I, I often tell folks that I will like flip them the link when the story comes out. And often I'll include something like, if you have any feedback, like, feel free to let me know or something like that. Like, Mm -hmm. how, how do you frame that? Um, I remember, like, I, I saw this interview with David Carr once, like the, the late New York Times media reporter who said, like, you never want someone to be surprised about something about themselves in a story. Like, no matter how harsh it's going to be, it's so much better to have that conversation before it comes out and be like, listen, I'm saying this thing. Um, and I try to do that as much as I can. Like, huh. I try to let those angry conversations happen before the piece comes out. Um, But when it doesn't, like, it sort of depends. I have, like, I don't have a lot, a lot of tolerance for, like, extreme rudeness. And if someone comes back and is like, this story is just at XYZ and you're garbage. And I'm like, okay, thanks for the feedback. But if someone's like, hey, I, I was really hurt by that. I don't think that was fair. I'll just reply and say i'm really sorry to hear that uh do you want to talk let's set up a time right okay that makes sense uh maybe another question on like what it feels like to write as a human being um at at one point in the story you write about spending days of research like um looking at like precise details about the art as stress hives grow and you keep blowing deadlines and you're researching stuff that you say that you know you'll cut from the final piece (laughs) um so frankly you're doing something that you know is unhelpful and you feel compelled to do this thing to keep like diving into those details i'm wondering if you could talk a bit about like managing the writing process as a human being who has a personality and your own neuroses and insecurities. And I guess I'm wondering, like, what are those tough things that the process of writing brings up for you? And how do you, like, live with those, manage those, work with those? Yeah, so I think, like, to to put all my cards on the table, like, there's a real before and after in the writing process for mm. me. And it's, like, before I started taking anxiety medication and after I started taking anxiety medication. Mm. Um, and, like, the part that's being described in that story when I'm working on the, the original David Mervish Rothko piece is, like, very much before. And, like, I, I would put, like, 
like so much pressure on myself. Like this, this is always the thing I wanted to do. And I always felt like I was on the brink of screwing myself out of being able to do it hmm. with every story. And, but, but I couldn't, like I couldn't stop myself from doing stuff that in some ways was helpful, like the sense of like being so obsessed with something that I'm going to get to the bottom of it no mm -hmm. matter what. But in some ways was like, like that story like was supposed to be a cover story and it was due on a Friday and I hadn't written a word. Like, like I did stuff that could have gotten me fired, you know, and it wasn't like, it's just literally like an inability of my brain to stop freaking out and huh. just start putting words down. Um, and I think like in part, cause I'm, cause I'm older and, and in part because like I got a kid and you can't, you just can't subsume your life a hundred percent to something like a story when you are responsible for someone else. <laughs> you can't. And I think that for me was super healthy in the long run. Um, because it forces you to create boundaries and um, to come up with, like I either had to come up with a healthier process or quit, huh. basically. Huh. And I think the fact that I did this story was as much as anything sort of a tribute to those processes and those boundaries. Huh, so interesting. I guess I'm wondering if you can speak a bit about like your relationship with um, your editor or editors on this piece. I think I'm recalling on Twitter you saying that you like, well, I mean, you said it in this interview, you pitched the story a bunch of times at the Post. Mm -hmm. You didn't ultimately write it for the Post. You ultimately wrote it for Hazlitt and, and worked with Haley. Um, Haley came to a class uh, that I was in uh, last semester, two semesters ago, and like systematically went through each person's feature idea and made it like at least 60% better. Like after she sort of like narrated back each person's idea, I was like, oh man, I'd, I'd read each one of those features. Um, I'm wondering if you can, yeah, just like talk a little bit about your journey working with her on the story or other uh, editors on the story and how they made it better. Yeah, I mean, she's the only one that uh, I worked with in the final idea. Like I never, from when I finally came up with like the pitch to do it as fragments, I actually initially pitched it to do it at like the Banff Center in Alberta does this like literary journalism, um, uh, like live in for a month and work on a piece. And I wrote a proposal for that and I got it, but like, I have a kid and a job. It was like, what was I thinking? I'm not going to be able to go spend a month in Banff. Mm. Um, and so I sent that pitch to Haley and was like, are you interested in this for Hazlitt? I wanted to do it for Banff. And like everybody else I had ever talked to about this story, including like, like good friends and, and <laughs> people I know like my writing and are on my side right. would just be like, what? is he doing and she was like yeah I love it hmm. I love it and I think like that trust in the idea and that it was a good idea was just everything to hmm. me because it sort of it was such a stretch from anything I'd written before and and so much bigger and weirder and unstructured it's not unstructured but not structured traditionally 
that through the long process of actually getting it done and a pandemic happening and figuring out drafts, I just knew that she believed in the idea and it just, that was just everything to me. And even like I filed finally like most of the first section to her at one point as like a proof of life thing. (laughs) Proof of your life or proof of the story's life? (laughs) Proof of the story's life and maybe proof of my life too. But, um, and like, it took a while and then she just wrote, she's like, I'll have some longer notes right now. But for now, I just want to say like, I'm screaming. I think this thing is so good. And like, I had no idea, like I had no idea if this thing would be like a curiosity that five people would read. Um, it was just so different and I had no, I had no gauge for whether it would do well. And like just Haley's confidence that regardless of impact or anything else that it was good. I just can't say enough about like that and, and how important that was to me. Hmm. Hmm. So cool. Um, okay. I want to zoom out a, a tiny bit um, as we get toward the end of this conversation. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um like when you started wanting to write or when writing became a part of your life? Uh, I, I, like I always wanted to write. Like if you go back to like being like a five-year-old and they'd ask you like what you want to do when you grew up, I would have said like, I want to play for the Edmonton Oilers and I want to work with tigers and I want to write stories. And like the other two fell away pretty quick. Um, but, uh, I, I, always, always, always wanted to write. And I thought like growing up that I would write books. Like I wanted to write novels and stuff. And I, um, I actually started out in a creative writing program at the university of Victoria and lasted like five weeks because like (laughs) I didn't sort of recognize it at the time, but like my anxiety was so severe that I couldn't make myself finish the first assignment. Like literally the first assignment was like a page and a half treatment for a play and I just remember like sitting at the top of the stairwell in my in my dorm in Victoria. There was like this platform and I would go up there sometimes to do homework. And I couldn't make myself do this like page and a half treatment. Uh, and I, I quit. I quit the entire program um, and sort of gradually came back to writing in a roundabout way through journalism and, and through the student paper, which I started out just like. I started out writing letters to, I think probably in my third or fourth year, like something would bother me or if I would find annoying and I would write these, these sort of long florid letters and they would just appear in the paper and I'd be like, wow, that's neat. And then one day this really tall guy starts yelling my name in the student union building. And it was this guy, Craig Battle, who's, who's a journalist in Toronto now. And he was like, Hey, are you, are you Richard Warnica? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, you know, you've, you've written enough letters now that like you're technically on staff at the paper, <laughs> so you should come to meetings. Huh. And that, 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 that kind of was it. I haven't done anything other than journalism since then. And that was like the year 2000. So why were those letters writing those letters? Why was that more accessible to you than trying to write something else like a treatment? I don't know. I think, I think part of it is, I don't think I ever would or could have been successful as a, as a fiction writer. I just don't think, like, I am sort of at the core a reporter, I think. Um, and I need that level of observation and story gathering to tell stories. 
Um, I just, I don't think I was, I, I know, I, I, I think that that didn't, yeah, I don't know. I, I, part of the letters thing, though, to more directly answer the question, I just think the stakes were so low. Mm. You know, like, I think, like, one of them was about, like, people who take intramural hockey too seriously or something, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it just didn't feel like, and it took me a while to realize, oh, the stakes can be high in this, too. Huh. And there there is writing in this world that can make you feel what well, like a great novel could make you feel and then you know slowly gradually come to the point of being like oh i want to do that kind of writing huh and how did you learn to be a reporter um so like i always was a pretty good writer and i and i i used that i think as a crutch early in my career like i would just try to write around reporting problems and then the issue was I, I I really wanted I wanted to write features and they all stunk because none of them none of them were well reported right I just didn't have enough material and so I would be like trying to spin 2,500 words out of like two interviews huh. um, and I think what really changed for me was becoming like a city reporter like I spent two years on the city desk in the Edmonton Journal and it just like, you just can't do that job and not report. Like you just have to do it every single day. And um, it was like two year boot camp in reporting for me. And just the thing I, I tell people who ask me now, like, oh, I want to be a feature writer. I want to be a feature writer. Is like, feature writing is like eighty percent feature reporting. And you, whatever you want to do with your next step, find a place that will let you get those reps of reporting that will just make you put you in a situation where you have to be interviewing people multiple times a week from all kinds of different worlds. And you have to be finding out pieces of information that you don't know how to find right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the work you do at the star is obviously like, I mean, I, I love reading your work in the star on Saturday mornings plus plus I this this piece in Hazlitt is certainly more like artistic and maybe a little bit more experimental maybe a little bit closer to what you were trying to do when you were first a baby writer trying to be a writer I guess I'm curious like where you hope to keep moving in your own writing journey yeah I I definitely, like, I almost think of it as having, like, two threads now. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. there's my writing job, my job writing, which is important and valuable and pays my bills and, and it's a great job. And then there's the, like, platonic ideal of a story writing, which is more what the Hazlitt one was. And I think, like, enough people liked that piece and it worked out <laughs> well enough in the end for me that I definitely, I, I want to be finding ways to, to stretch that muscle more and to sort of see, to see where I can go with it. You know what I mean? Like I, I do, like I'm staring at like a, like a shelf of like narrative nonfiction and essay writing books right now. And just thinking about like how some of the stories in some of those books made me feel the first time I read them or like some of the sentences and some of the images. And I just think like all I want to do with my professional life is, is strive to 
do that for other people and, and get that done as many times as I can before they cart me off. Cool. Cool. Well, as a, a reader who really well, enjoys I just, your sorry, work. <laughs> I just realized that was like a very portentous slash pretentious way to end this thing. Um, I think it's a perfect way to end. <laughs> I think that's, that's exactly the move. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> And that's your episode of the podcast for this week. Pull Quotes is published by the Review of Journalism at X University. Our show hosts are Rahaf Farawi and me, Gabe Oatley. Our podcast team also includes Andrew Oliphant and Annika Foreman. Technical audio support is provided by Angela Glover and web support by Lindsay Hanna. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata. Music by Harrison Ammer. Join us back here in about 10 days time for the next episode.